Thank you, team. Well, this week we are continuing our series on the 12 Apostles of Jesus. And today we're looking at Andrew. Last week, Pastor Glenn had his work cut out for him trying to narrow down uh, from the huge amount of biblical references that there are to the Apostle Peter. Can I tell you that I don't have such a problem this week? There are only 12 biblical references to Andrew. Three of them concern his calling as a disciple. Four of them are simply where his name appears in a list of the apostles. A further two of them are little more than references in passing where we learn some little interesting tidbit of information, um, but really he's not further involved in the story which leaves us with only three instances in the entire ministry of Jesus where Andrew's involvement has actually been documented. And if you drill down a little further into those 12 biblical references that are up there on the screen, you will find that two-thirds of all of those references either directly or indirectly refer to Andrew as being Simon Peter's brother. So the ones up there in red directly refer to him as the brother of Simon Peter and the ones there in blue indirectly refer to him. So it is hardly surprising then that if a a Western Christian today knows anything about Andrew, it is most likely that he's the brother of Simon Peter. But... That has not always been the case. There is plenty more to be said about Andrew and it is not the case in many other parts of the world that all that they know about Andrew is that he was the brother of Simon Peter. Now, I know that many of you here are well-travelled people. And so this morning I'm going to ask those of you who are well-travelled people to see if you can help those who are not well-travelled people as we take a little journey. Can anyone tell us the name of this stunning church and where it might be located? Anyone got any ideas? Everyone knows? It is in Ukraine. It's St Andrew's Church in Kyiv, in Ukraine. Beautiful church. Hope it survives all that is happening there at the moment. What about this one? You can probably hazard a guess at the name, given the first name that we've already had. What are we looking at here? Evelyn, do you know this one? (laughs) This is the cave of St Andrew and the monastery that has been built around that cave. It is in Romania. What about this one? I'm looking at one person to see if he knows, but maybe he doesn't. This one is St Andrew's Cathedral in Patras in Greece. Houses some of the the relics of Andrew's body. 
Now, all the churches are pretty easy. I could put up a few others. They all have the same name, St Andrew's Church or Cathedral in various different places. So I'm going to make it a little bit harder for you. Does anyone know what we're looking at here? For those who are listening to a recording, we are looking at something that goes around a person's neck. It's quite ornate. Anyone know? No, this is the Order of St Andrew. It is the highest honour in the Russian Empire. It's akin to a knighthood. And if you look very closely, you will see that the medallion around the bottom of it features a picture of St Andrew on his X-shaped cross, the cross on which he was crucified. And if you look even closer, you'll see that on the points of the cross, there is a letter on each point. S-A-P-R. Anyone has it a guess what S-A-P-R stands for? St Andrew is the first bit, that's easy. St Andrew, patron of Russia. Interesting. All right, one final image. I think a few people will know this one. <laughs> yeah. It is Scotland. It is the old course in the town of St Andrews in Scotland. A place where Andrew was so revered that not only do they name a town after him, but their national flag prominently features that cross on which he was crucified, the X-shaped cross known as the Saltaire. White cross on a blue background, not to be confused with a blue cross on a white background, which is the flag of the Russian Navy, again in honour of St Andrew. So from our little photographic world tour, we can see that Andrew is a very big deal in many parts of the world. He is an important historical figure in quite a number of countries, countries as diverse as Ukraine, Romania, Greece, Russia and Scotland. And yet many Christians today know Andrew only as the lesser known brother of Peter. How do we reconcile these two seemingly disparate images of Andrew? And that is the question that I want to try and answer today as we look at just what we can learn about discipleship from Andrew. And we're going to begin with those 12 biblical mentions of Andrew and try and extract from them everything that we possibly can to build up a picture of this man. And we begin with an obscure little mention relating to the call of another disciple, Philip. We find that one in John 1. Verse 44. And from that little reference, we know that Andrew and his brother Peter were from Bethsaida, which was also Philip's hometown. However, when we first encounter Andrew in the Bible, he isn't at Bethsaida. He's somewhere near Bethany, beyond the Jordan. Not to be confused with Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, which was much closer to Jerusalem and was the hometown of Mary, Martha and Lazarus. This is Bethany beyond the Jordan, on the east side of the Jordan River. 
We are looking at John 1.28 for those who like to follow along and we're going to work our way through that passage. John the Baptist is there in that region. He's preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's preparing the way for the Lord and he's baptising people. And one of those whom he has baptised is Jesus. And Andrew is there too. But he's not there as one of the crowd listening to this strange looking guy dressed in camel hair and eating wild locusts and honey and preaching this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Andrew is there because he is a disciple of John the Baptist. And that tells us something of the nature and character of this man, Andrew. See, a disciple was a student. And in those days, generally, students did not choose their teachers. The teacher chose and called the student to follow them. That was a normal way of doing things. The student would attain a certain level of education in the Jewish scriptures and then they would be called by a, a rabbi or a teacher to come and follow and learn from them. Now, John the Baptist was an unconventional sort of guy, so we can't say for sure that that's how things worked with John the Baptist, but it is possible, quite possible, that Andrew may have been well-schooled in Judaism, perhaps even more so than his brother Peter. His brother Peter in Acts 4 is referred to as a grammatos, by the Sanhedrin, meaning illiterate, and also idiotes. And I'm sure you can figure out which English word we get from that Greek word. If nothing else, even if that is not true of Andrew, what we can say that his discipleship under John definitely tells us is that he was a spiritually sensitive, genuine seeker. So Andrew and this other unnamed disciple of John the Baptist, they are standing with John somewhere in the Judean countryside when John the Baptist declares, look, the Lamb of God. He sees Jesus and he declares, look, the Lamb of God. And so Andrew and this other unnamed disciple leave John and go and follow Jesus. Now remember that John the Baptist was very open about what his mission was. He was very open about his own identity. He says, I am the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. So when you are a student under a teacher whose mission is to identify someone else who's coming after him, when that teacher points out that person, look, the Lamb of God, the correct response is not to go, oh yeah, there he is, and continue on with your teacher. The correct response is to go and be with him and to learn from him. 
And John the Baptist would have felt no disappointment in losing two disciples on that particular day. They had learned well from him. Well, Jesus senses that they are following him and turning to see them, he asks them a question. The NIV renders that question, what do you want? It's not a brilliant rendering of the sense of the word there. The word there is seek or search or desire. It's better rendered in the ESV, what are you seeking? That's what Jesus is asking them. What are you seeking? Neither Andrew nor the other unnamed disciple actually directly answer the question. They call him rabbi or teacher and they ask where he is staying or literally where he is abiding or remaining. And Jesus invites them to come and see. It's an invitation to come and enter into his presence, enter into his inner circle. And so they go with him to the place that he was abiding and they spend the day with Jesus. And so Andrew's first lesson for us today in discipleship is that being a disciple is not about head knowledge. It is not about just acknowledging, yes, there's the Lamb of God, that's who I believe he is. He takes away the sin of the world. It's more than that. It's about remaining with him, seeing where he abides, learning from him and doing likewise. Now, Jesus may well have been staying in some little backwater inn in the middle of nowhere in the Judean countryside on that day, we don't know. But that wasn't where he was really abiding. This sense of abiding is very important in John's Gospel. It's one of the key themes in John's Gospel. And it is first introduced to us here on the lips of Andrew, the very beginning of chapter 1, when he asks, Rabbi, where are you staying or where are you abiding? And then in John chapter 14, Jesus says these words, Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I tell you I speak not from myself, but the Father who lives or abides in me does his works. And then in the very next chapter, which is that chapter about the vine and the branches, remain in me and I will remain or abide in you, neither can you bear fruit unless you remain or abide in me. It's all the same word being used right through the gospel. Where are you abiding? Well, the real answer to that question is that Jesus was abiding in the Father and the Father was abiding in him. And that is what he wants for all true disciples. Jesus' invitation to Andrew and the other disciple was to come and see. Come and you will see. Come and spend time with Jesus and you will find out where he abides. Abide in him and he'll abide in you. And if you do that, 
you will produce much fruit. And that same invitation that was extended right back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry has continued to be extended to all who would come seeking after Jesus. Come and you will see, abide in him. Now all of us would love, I'm sure, to know a little bit about what was shared on that particular day, but the Bible doesn't tell us. But what we do know for sure is that at the end of that time that he spent with Jesus, Andrew was in absolutely no doubt about who this man was. And knowing who this man was, his first thought was that I must go and tell my brother Peter. And so off he goes, finds Peter, and he declares, we found the Messiah or the Christ. Having received the good news himself, being filled with the great joy of that good news, Andrew couldn't keep it to himself, and neither can any true disciple. And off he goes to joyfully share the good news with others. Well, after his day spent with Jesus, the next that we hear of Andrew, he is living in Capernaum. And he's living with his brother Peter, and presumably with Peter's wife, since we also read in that little verse that we have, that little snippet of information, that Peter's mother-in-law also lived in the house. So we assume that the wife did as well. So he's living with his brother's family, and they uh, are part of the household together. And evidently the two of them are working a fishing boat together. And Jesus has also made Capernaum his home base after returning to Galilee once he heard that John the Baptist had been put into prison. And so it is by the Sea of Galilee, somewhere near Capernaum, that Jesus calls out to the brothers, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And what we've learned here is that this, it wasn't a random encounter. Jesus wasn't just walking along the side of the shore and he comes across a couple of people he's never seen before. At very least, Andrew had spent a whole day with Jesus, but probably more likely, um, they had come to know each other relatively well in the intervening period. And one wonders what Andrew might have shared of that time with his brother and with the other fishermen there. I imagine that his encounters with Jesus would have been a hot topic for discussion amongst the fishing fraternity there. Now much is made of Peter's great declaration of faith that comes a little later in the gospel accounts. Peter famously says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But Peter wasn't the first to recognise Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah. That honour actually goes to Andrew back in the Judean countryside on that day that John the Baptist first pointed him out. And that pretty much sums up the state of affairs for Andrew's legacy in the Bible. It has been largely overshadowed by his more dominant brother. And yet nowhere 
in the gospel does Andrew seem even slightly bothered by this? Whilst other disciples would be arguing about who would take the places of honour on either side of Jesus in glory, Andrew doesn't seem to have ever had any such concern. And none of the gospel writers have ever found reason to write anything negative about him. While some of the others might have been um, present at some of the important events, like the transfiguration of Jesus, Andrew was not. In the book of Acts, there is no mention of him, except for in that list of the disciples who remained in Jerusalem praying constantly after Jesus had ascended. Andrew's not specifically mentioned as having preached to large crowds or having healed the sick or having driven out demons, but we know that he did. He must have because he was included in the 12 that Jesus sent out and commissioned to do just that. Andrew, it seems, just got on with doing whatever needed to be done. He was happy to humbly serve the Lord in whatever way he could without needing any fanfare. In John's Gospel, while Philip is busy pointing out how ludicrous it is to think of feeding 5,000 people or 5,000 men since eight months' wage would hardly buy them one mouthful each, Andrew is busy scanning the crowd, searching for anything that might be of use. It's Andrew who finds the boy with the loaves and the fishes. And even though he wonders how far they might go amongst so many people, still he offers them up to his Lord. And that's what disciples do. They depend on Jesus knowing that they are not able in their own strength. So they offer up what they have to Jesus and allow him to do what he will with it. In each of the four lists of the apostles, Andrew is either listed second after his brother Peter or fourth after Peter, James and John. We know from that that he was part of Jesus' inner circle. So you had the group of disciples and then within them there was a smaller group that was the inner circle and Andrew was part of that inner circle. But whilst Peter, James and John often feature more prominently, Andrew was definitely part of that inner four, which means he was close to Jesus. And we see this in John's Gospel when some Greeks who've gone up to worship at one of the festivals approach Philip and they ask to see Jesus. And Philip seems a little bit unsure about what he should do. Perhaps Philip was aware that Jesus' ministry during his time on earth was first to the Jews. And now here's this group of Gentiles or more likely proselyte Jews, so converts to Judaism since they're attending a Jewish feast. It's, it's likely that that's what they were. Here they are asking to see Jesus. 
Well, Philip doesn't take their request directly to Jesus. He chooses instead to go to Andrew. Perhaps Andrew was considered wise. Perhaps he was just closer to Jesus than to some of the other disciples. Or perhaps as Jesus' inner circle, it was just natural to first consult Andrew. Andrew and Philip then take the request to Jesus and Jesus explains the way in which by his death and resurrection he would draw all men to himself. In Mark's Gospel, we find Andrew as part of that inner circle with Peter, James and John sitting with Jesus on the Mount of Olives looking across at the temple. And Jesus had previously told his disciples that None of those beautiful stones of the temple would remain on top of each other. They would all be thrown down and the temple was going to be destroyed. And so now in this private audience that they have with Jesus, the disciples, these four disciples, want to know when these things will happen. And so they ask him. But Jesus isn't so much interested in the specifics of when and where and how. He's more interested in preparing them for what lies ahead. And in short, he tells them that disciples should expect persecution. They shouldn't be alarmed when it comes. They should stand firm through it and they should depend on the Holy Spirit to help them know what to say when they would be called to account. And Andrew would certainly experience that later on in his life. The Bible paints for us a picture of Andrew as a humble man, perhaps a man of few words, since few of his words are actually recorded for us, but a man of deep spiritual perception and strong conviction. A man content to simply labour away without needing to be recognised for it. The Bible tells us nothing of what happened to him after the death and resurrection of Jesus, except that he was there with the group of disciples who remained in Jerusalem constantly in prayer. And all of them would have been there when that great sound like the rushing of wind came from heaven and the Holy Spirit descended upon them like tongues of fire. So to find out or to get a picture of what happened to Andrew after the death and resurrection of Jesus, we need to consult some of the extra-biblical sources, the historical documents, ancient historical documents. And from these, we can piece together something of what happened. Like the other apostles filled with the Holy Spirit, Andrew was faithful to his commission. That desire that he had to joyfully tell others about his Lord would stay with him throughout his entire life. Andrew is said to have taken the gospel north along the northern part of the Black Sea. So there's two maps up there. One's a more ancient one and a more modern one of the same area. And he is said to have gone up this way the northern part of the Black Sea. Through the region of Scythia, or Scythia, which is now 
Ukraine and Russia. And he travelled as far north as Kiev, where he's said to have planted a cross. And that beautiful church, which I showed you at the beginning, marks the site of the northernmost point of where the Apostle Andrew took the gospel. He returned to Byzantium, which was then ancient Greece and is now Istanbul. Uh, I think it's somewhere around here. And he ministered there for a time. He founded its first see, which is sort of like a diocese or a, an area that the bishop has jurisdiction over, before spending time ministering in Thrace, which is this area down here. Today, Romania, in that area. Also in Anatolia, down here, which today is Turkey. And then Macedonia before moving to southern Greece. And it was there in Achaia that he was ultimately crucified. Allegedly, it was um, an act of retaliation by a Roman governor whose wife, having been led to Christ by Andrew, refused to recount her newfound faith. And so Andrew was crucified as a result. The governor, wishing to prolong his suffering, tied him to the cross rather than nailing him to that X-shaped cross, X-shaped cross known as the Sultai. Various accounts say that he hung there for anywhere between two and four days. And during that time, this man of so few words in the Bible refused to stop talking. He preached his way through that time on the cross and tradition has it that more than 2,000 new converts were won during his time on the cross in Patras. So, the relationship between Andrew and Greece, Ukraine, Russia and Romania has been established, but what of Scotland? Well, that link was forged even after his death. Apparently, the apostles' bones were being held at Patras, where he was martyred, but they were due to be transferred to a newly built Church of the Holy Apostles in Constantinople, which was the capital, the new capital of the empire in the 4th century AD. However, tradition has it that a couple of days before the transfer was due to happen, one of the monks who was looking after the relics had a vision. And in that vision, he was told to take them far away to a land in the west. So he removed a portion from the relics and he set sail, eventually apparently becoming shipwrecked in Scotland, where he built a church to house the relics in what is today St Andrews, Scotland. As for the flag, tradition has the origins of the flag in a battle fought in 832 AD. The Picts were led by King Angus McFergus. It's a great name, King Angus McFergus. And they were aided by the Scots in their battle 
but they were being pursued by the much, much larger army of the Angles and the Saxons. And fearing defeat, King Angus led prayers for their deliverance. And as the two armies faced one another, it is said that the clouds in the sky formed a white cross against the blue background of the sky. And the king vowed that if St Andrew would help lead them to victory, he would become the patron saint of Scotland. The battle was won. And when Scotland was formed, the clouds of the white cross against the blue background became the national flag of Scotland and St Andrew became the patron saint of that country. It is one of the oldest national flags in the world. And it features prominently not just in Scotland but in quite a few other countries as well. Even the Union Jack has that cross as part of the combined crosses of England, Northern Ireland and Scotland that make up the part of the Union Jack. There is much that we can learn from the Apostle Andrew, but perhaps the greatest lesson of all, I think, has to be just what God can do with a single, humble soul who abides in him, depends on him, and is willing to faithfully offer up what he or she has in service. None of us can ever know what God might do with that brother that we might bring to Christ or those loaves and fishes that we might offer up to him. But bring the brother and offer up whatever it is that you have anyway and see what God will do. Just one question I think remains for us today and that is the question which I raised at the beginning. How do we reconcile these two different images that we have of Andrew, the humble biblical record and the missionary legend that this man became. And today I'm just going to leave you with one word and it's a word I think that applies not only to Andrew but to all of the disciples who remained after Jesus' death and resurrection. And that word, of course, is Pentecost. Pentecost made all the difference in these men's lives, filled with the Holy Spirit, ordinary men, as they were, did extraordinary things. And we have that same spirit with us today. Ordinary men and women can continue to do extraordinary things when they partner with the Holy Spirit in their lives. Amen. Father, we thank you for people like Andrew, ordinary working people, humble people who abide in you and who depend on you and who show us what a life fully surrendered to you can look like. Lord, your first words to him were a question, what are you seeking? And Lord, we pray that among us today there might be some who are genuinely seeking and who will find what they're looking for 
when they abide with you. Amen. Imjai is going to lead us in a song. Thank Let you. Let us all stand.